All righty, let's get started. Turn with me to 1 Kings, chapter 20, 1 Kings 20. I'm going to pick up where we left off. Uh, beautiful uh, place here, watching the Lord use Elisha and uh, Elijah, the prophets. Um, let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Uh, Heavenly Father, we can't understand anything unless your spirit helps us. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we could see these truths, put them into practice. It's, a, it's always our prayer, Lord, help us to, to hear your voice, to have life in your name. Amen. Well, it is always good to know that God is in control, amen? When leaders are overthrown and countries invade other countries to gain control, when there are earthquakes in various places, all of these things we've seen recently, it's always good to know, uh, especially in troubling times, that God is in full sovereign control over the earth, and that's a really good thing. I love what Daniel says uh, after the Lord gives him, gives him an interpretation of a dream. He just praises the Lord. And in chapter 2 and verse 21, uh, he says, God determines the course of world events. He removes kings and sets others on the throne. And when we tuned in last here to 1 Kings, that's exactly what was happening uh, God was removing kings and setting up others to replace them uh, and using his prophet Elijah, who also will be stepping down and being replaced by Elisha. But Elijah will facilitate those changes in those two uh, kings and confirm uh, who will fill those positions in the name of the Lord. So in chapter 19... There were three assignments. God tells Elijah, number one, go and find the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, uh, Israel's arch nemesis, and he must be replaced by another. And number two, uh, the king of Israel, Ahab, one of the worst kings ever, had to be replaced by another. And then even, number three, even Elijah himself was to step aside and go and find a prophet named Elisha uh, who would end up uh, replacing him and, and uh, filling that office. So last time, uh, Elijah took care of the personal business first and went and found his replacement before the two kings. Uh, he went and found Elisha, and you'll remember that he was plowing uh, busy at the family farm, and uh, Elijah passed his mantle over to Elisha, who accepted the call, and now is Elijah's assistant being raised up. So one task down, two left, right? A new king for Syria and a new king for Israel. Now we're gonna find out, chapter 20 is to tell us what's going on with those two kings who will soon be replaced. Verse one. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, or Syria, so here's our, our Syrian king, uh, mustered his army, his entire army, accompanied by 32 tribal kings with their horses and chariots. He went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. 
He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel. There's our second king. Saying, this is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and gold are mine. The best of your wives and children are mine. Well, the king of Israel answered, uh, just as you say, my lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. Well, that was easy. <laughs> Verse 5. The messengers came again and said, this is what Ben-Hadad also says. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, see how this man is looking for trouble. <laughs> when, when he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I didn't refuse him. <laughs> but the elders and the people all answered, don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers, tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this second demand I cannot meet. They left and took the answer back to Ben-Hadad. Then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. Samaria's where the king of Israel is hanging out. Verse 11, the king of Israel answered, well, tell him, <laughs> one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. And we'll talk about what that means. Verse 12, Ben-Hadad heard this message understood it, <laughs> while he and the kings were drinking in their tents, and he ordered his men prepared to attack. So they prepared to attack. All right, let's stop there. We're going to pause there, and uh, if you're taking notes, number one, uh, Ahab gets fed up. Ahab gets fed up. Now, you also know the saying that chickens have come home to roost, right? Well, that just means a bad decision in the past will surely catch up with you. Uh, like chickens, the consequences of bad behavior, they always know how to find their way home. They always come back to the coop. And uh, the Lord is merciful and gracious, thankfully. Uh, but oftentimes, we uh, reap what we sow. And so, did you know that back in chapter 15, and why I'm saying the chickens are coming home to roost, is because good King Asa was mostly a good king back in chapter 15. But what did he do? Do you remember what he did? He felt threatened by the king of Israel, and so he bribed Ben-Hadad at the time, the king of Syria, and emptied out the treasuries of the Lord's temple and said, listen, buddy, can I buy your assistance? And he bribed the king of Syria, this guy that we're talking about, and empowered him with treasury from God's people just because he needed a favor. He needed to boost up his army, and so he wanted his enemy to serve a purpose. And, and 
I'll tell you what, you know, commentators are all over this to spiritually apply it to us who, who want to make use of, of some of our enemies, uh, temptations or sins that we keep around. Uh, and the reason we keep them around is because they serve some kind of temporary purpose, right? Uh, little do we know that in the end, the chickens come home to roost. Right? And so did King Asa think, like in a few years, I've empowered the enemies of God's people? Ah, do you remember what the Lord told Asa? Asa said, you should have trusted me because I would have given you the king of Israel and the king of Syria. He was, Asa was the king of Judah, by the way. But he was supposed to take care of Ben-Hadad back in the day. But not only didn't he take care of him because he couldn't trust Lord to de- the, the Lord to defeat him, but he bribed him and empowered him, gave him money. And so, you know, when we keep sins and temptations alive instead of putting them to death, in the end, they just come back to bite us. And so, here we have uh, Ahab getting fed up. Now, Ahab, wicked man that he is, gets a backbone here. And so, you know, there's a bright spot here and there in Ahab's life, even though he's a horrendous uh, man. Now, here's the situation. Uh, Syria provokes a war. Israel's been weakened by a three and a half year famine and drought. Uh, The king of Syria uh, puts together 32 tribal kings there, uh, and they're going to have a coalition against um, Israel. The Syrian people, the leaders, against Israel. 2,800 years later, just open up the newspaper and read the leaders of Syria against Israel. 2,800 years is a very long time. Amen? Well, those are the prophecies, too. The prophecies remain uh, as uh, they are. So Israel's enemy sends a message, and there are two messages. And the first one comes, uh, listen, everything you got is mine. And Ahab just is going to roll over, and, and at first he says, well, whatever, okay, like I can defeat this guy, he's stronger than me, okay, I agree to your terms. And then secondly, he sends a second message, and he says, and another thing, unlock all your doors and gates and safes, because we're going to search the place and the palace and all your officials' homes, and we want full access, because whatever we find when we come down, we're taking it. Well, something pushed Ahab over because I don't see uh, the big difference between the first and the second, but apparently the second really uh, uh, pushed him over the line. And so Ahab's response, uh, okay, yes to the first request, no to the second. Now, even Ahab has a, a line in the sand. Even a morally degenerate person uh, has a line that says, you know what, you've crossed over one too many times, and, and uh, some commentators like to see this as, uh, you know, Christians, believers, who tolerate the enemy's taunts and have, have compromised, but even Christians uh, can have enough. I like what one commentator said, morally weak people who normally serve as the enemy's punching bag 
uh, usually giving in to his demands. Sometimes in a moment of grace, when the adversary has gone too far, they stand up and resist and fight and win. Now, sooner or later, weak-willed Christians must have an Ahab moment when they say, you know what? That's really quite enough. A lot of Christians put up with a lot of nonsense, a lot of lies, a lot of living beneath the, uh, the dignity of, a, of the Christian life, uh, underneath the promises of God. And so, so sometimes Satan will overplay his hand, and the Christian will wake up and say, what am I doing? Why don't I take a little authority here? You know, in Jesus' name. You know, you will see things happen that way. But you have to kind of have a wake-up moment like Ahab. So Israel uh, is going to resist the Syrian king. And like all bully tyrants, the king of Syria is not pleased to have a little pushback. So uh, Ben-Hadad is not a happy camper. So what does he say in verse 10? I swear by my gods, there won't even be a, a handful of dust left after we take everything we want. Now, uh, dude, your gods are like uh, wood and, and rock, you know? So, you know, I used to swear by your gods all you want, but everybody who's reading this later is just laughing at you. Uh, but anyway, he, yeah, verse 11 says, uh, really after getting some encouragement from the other officials who don't want Hadad to come in through their houses uh, on a shopping spree. Um, Uncharacteristic of Ahab, he sends back an in-your-face message to the king of Syria. And here's what he says. He says, literally, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off, in verse 11. And here's the translation. Maybe you should boast about your victory after the battle, not before. Knucklehead. All right. I threw in the knucklehead. Just, it's really hard to see in the Hebrew because it's not there. All right. The, the timing for Ahab's sarcastic, sarcastic reply is really bad because the Syrian king is with the 32 other kings and they're all in a tent. And what are they doing? They're having a drinking party. And so in comes a guy and says, hey, boss, we got, we got word back from Israel. He, he's answered you. Yes, what does he say? He says, you're dumb and your mother dresses you funny. <laughs> <laughs> Bad timing to say, you know what? First request, I had no problem. Second one, no. And by the way, uh, you, you ought to try boasting about beating us after you actually do it, all right? And so when's a, a, not a good time to challenge a guy is when all the other guys are around in the tent and there's beer involved. This is not good, this is not good. So they all look at him like, you gonna take that, you know? And so what does he say? He says, let's go mop the floor with those mouthy Jews, all right? So he says, let's go teach Mr. Ahab a lesson about putting on armor and boasting. And so uh, here we go, 13 through 22. Now meanwhile, a prophet comes to Ahab, king of Israel, and announces, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? Oh, it's a big one. I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I'm the Lord. 
But who will do this, asked Ahab. <laughs> Certainly not him. <laughs> the prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The young officers of the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the young officers of the provincial commanders, men, uh, he, he, yeah, the young men. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him uh, were in their tents getting drunk. Hmm. The young officers of the provincial commanders went out first. Now Ben-Hadad had dispatched scouts who reported men are advancing from Samaria. So here come the Israelites. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. Now, what's going on there? I hope you got what this is about. Verse 16, he's drunk. He's drunk. He's, his command, uh, hey, if they come out for peace, keep them alive. If they mean something else, keep them alive. I mean, yeah, keep them alive. So, Part of why they're losing, part of why they lose is they're drunk. I mean, everybody pointed that out in the Bible studies. The guy is making no sense. Why? Because verse 16, they set out at noon while Ben-Hadad was getting drunk. There it is. And so, let's continue. <laughs> so, the young officers now of Israel march out against the city, the army behind them, and each one struck down his opponent. Uh, at that, the uh, Syrians, and that's another word for the ancient Syrians, uh, fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on horseback with some of the horsemen. Uh, the king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans or the Syrians. Afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, strengthen your position and see what must be done because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. All right, so number one was Ahab gets uh, fed up. And number two, the king of Israel gets a head up, heads up, all right? So while the king of Syria drinks up, uh, he gets a heads up by an anonymous man of God with some good news. And, and boy, oh boy, do we serve a merciful God. You may be asking yourself, why is God going to bail out Ahab, one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever had, and Israel right now? Israel right now is in a total state of unbelief and rebellion. So why is God going to do that? Well, Israel's in luck. Uh, Syrian arrogance is bothering God uh, more than Israel's rebellion. And God is just merciful. God is merciful. Grace defined is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy defined is not getting what you do deserve. And so Israel really and Ahab deserve to be taken out to the woodshed and left there, really. Uh, but God is at his best and being merciful to them when they are at their worst. Does that remind you of Romans 
chapter 5 and verse 8, while we were yet sinners. God demonstrated his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, when we wanted nothing to do with God, when we were at our worst, that's when Jesus laid down his life for us. Uh, there was no promise. There was no, uh, nothing that we were doing that made God want to do that. It was just total mercy. I will sing of the tender mercies of the Lord forever. Psalm 89, verse 1. Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so uh, Syria is determined to attack. And so Ben-Hadad of Syria and his men reinforced their courage to attack with alcohol. Uh, Not very smart. Now, I Googled today after I read this passage. I was just Googling around, and I, I, I Googled alcohol a factor because I wanted to bring up all the articles that said, oh, and by the way, alcohol was a factor. Tragedy after tragedy, murder after murder, crash after crash, death after death. And then somewhere in the article that I Googled, alcohol a factor. So you know what? There's no thou shalt not beer or wine in the Bible. There's always thou shalt not be drunk. But in this day and age, it would make a lot of sense to to lay aside Christian liberty to abstain. Uh, I think that's just wisdom. But that's between you and the Lord. But just know this. Alcohol is a factor in every tragedy, it seems. that. Well, what I'm trying to say is, is that when there's an overabundance of alcohol, nothing good ever comes from it. That's what I'm trying to say. Amen? Amen. So... Um, King Ahab's uh, most hopeful moment here, too bad he couldn't uh, build on this momentum. Because, I mean, you could say, listen, he believes the prophet. He has faith, I, I mean, in what the prophet's saying. He cooperates with the word of God. And God is fighting for him. And God's saying that Ahab shall know that I am the Lord, right? But you know what? Don't be fooled. Uh, Wicked people and unbelievers have bright, shining moments. Uh, It doesn't mean anything. Uh, Let's see what the next chapter brings, right? And the next chapter will define him for who he is, an an evil, unbelieving man. So uh, don't be a sucker for the tears of Judas for any good deeds that he does, because good deeds done by an unredeemed heart count for nothing. And uh, this guy, really, he's a lost cause. But God has been trying with this guy for years and years and years. Do you hear the Lord? That you may know, Ahab, that my mercy toward you and my love for you hasn't failed. I'm still for you, and I'm going to help you out of this jam that you're in. Wow. So wicked Ahab's pleasantly surprised by the prophet's words at verse 14. He says, we're, we're going to win? <laughs> He's surprised. And, th- and then he has a question, who will be the ones to beat them? And then, uh, you will, silly. 
And who's going to start this? You will. You and your fighters. And one, one writer put it this way. Christians are quick to believe God can do all things, but slow to realize he does those things through us. <laughs> right? <laughs> He's like, uh, we're going to win? Really? Uh, who? Who's going to do it? You. What? <laughs> right. Christ in you, right? Uh, who overcomes the world? You. Who judges angels in the next life? You. Who sits on a throne and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. I saw somebody look confused. All right. Well, well, do you not know that we will judge angels? We judge angels in the life to come. I don't know whether that means the fallen ones. It sounds like the fallen ones stand before the throne. And somehow we're involved. We're on thrones as well. And we judge them. I didn't mean to go down this bunny trail, but, you know, you made me. <laughs> now, try to keep a straight face, and we'll keep the bunny trails to a minimum. Uh, who's more than a conqueror? You. Right. Who can make a difference in this world? You. Who can resist the devil? Who can overcome the devil? You. Whose prayers are effective and powerful? Yours. James chapter 5, right? So uh, anyway, Syria is stubborn. Verse 22, after the dust settles and Syria retreats over the last hill into the sunset, um, the same prophet warns the king uh, of Israel, uh, King Ahab, it's not quite over. They'll be back in the spring, so get ready. Verses 23 through 25, paraphrase this way. He says, man, don't give up. We lost this time, but it wasn't your fault, man. Israel's gods are the hill gods. The Syrian gods, our gods, are over the flat areas. So take heart, replace the army. Let's do this again, horse for horse, chariot for chariot that was lost. And in the spring, we'll wipe them out, plain and simple. We'll pull a fast one on their god. So, so here's what they're saying. They're saying, yeah, we lost, okay? But here's why we lost. Obviously, their God is the God of all the hills, right? So if we could just get those Jews uh, on flat land, our gods, who are really good on flat land, will wipe their God completely out. Now, you laugh. Now, listen. The unbelieving mind can be deceived into embracing all sorts of false and ridiculous ideas about God in order to justify their continued resistance to him so they can save face and keep living for themselves. So they make stuff up and they believe it. Uh, this all happened by chance. It was just a big explosion. And bam, look at us. Wow, what a coincidence. What a happy accident, right? Or that we came from monkeys. Or, uh, or the universe is God. You know, the universe really wanted this to happen. The universe has a will? <laughs> uh, seriously? Uh, you know, I, I had one guy tell me, you know what, don't you understand, man? You're God. You're God. Open your third eye. Well, I didn't know I had more than two, <laughs> but... <laughs> Open your third eye, your God? The first thing I wanted to do is, like, does my wife know this? <laughs> Surely she knows that that's not true. What do you say 
I, I said this to one guy, and this one guy answers back. He says, I said, you know what you're saying? You're saying you are God. And he goes, have I been with you so long and still you don't recognize me? That's what Jesus said to Philip. I just, yeah. So all I'm saying is, is that we laugh at the, the ridiculous idea of justifying their loss by saying, well, it's just because their God is good on the hills, right? Well, the, we have unbelievers every day who say things just as ridiculous to justify why they want to continue to resist him and fight against him. And so the king of Syria hears that Israel's God is limited, and he Ben-Hadad must be drinking again because he goes, okay, in verse 25, let's do this again, we'll fight. So 26 through uh, 34 now. The next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. So here they come again on the flat places. <laughs> When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats while the Syrians covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans think that the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. For seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted 100,000 casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, uh, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them. <laughs> and Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. So the king of Syria hiding in a closet. Verse 31, his official said to him, look, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. So wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. <laughs> the king answered, is he still alive? He's my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go and get him, the king said. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come up into his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered, and you may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Ahab said, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. All right, let's pause there. Number one, King Ahab was fed up, right? Number two, he gets a heads up, which comes to pass. And now number three, the king of Syria gives up. All right. So springtime in the Golan Heights, uh, following their respective counselors' advice, both kings now return to battle uh, on lower elevations. But Israel wipes Syria and the coalition off 
the map. And, and who they don't get to, an earthquake uh, takes care of the survivors. Verse 28, the Lord explains, because the Syrians thought I could only handle the hills and not other terrain, that my power was limited, now they know the whole earth belongs to me and, I'm, and I am the Lord. You know what gets me is he wants Ahab, his own Jewish Israelite, to understand. That's twice in our passage. And there are other times where the Lord is saying uh, that you will know that I'm the Lord. And if you know that I'm the Lord, then you'll stop fighting me. And then I can love you and you can experience my forgiveness. So the, the Lord is very gracious to this man. So verse 30 the Syrian king is hiding in a closet uh, like a frightened little chihuahua, uh, and uh, his counselors devise a new plan. Uh, let's surrender, let's surrender because apparently the Lord is good on flat surfaces too. Um, I love verse 31, love it. Hey, we've, the, those Israelite kings, back to the time of David and Solomon, They've, they've got a reputation for being merciful. God's people, uh, despite of all, all their rebellion, there's something of a reputation for being merciful people. That's just awesome. If it's one quality you must strive for every day in your Christian life, it's mercy. It's mercy, it's mercy. The world needs to know where they can go when they don't deserve it. Right? I mean, when you're not merciful, you make God seem to others uh, like he's just as demanding and rigid as you are. And, and we're not afforded the luxury of being able to say, I know I'm not a very merciful person, but God isn't like me. That's the whole point of the New Testament is that we reflect uh, God's character qualities to the world that they might see the light of Christ in us. We're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. As loving as Christ is, as merciful as God is, we ought to be like that. And, and for all Israel's problems, they're known as a people who, with whom you could find uh, mercy. So the Syrian survivors are not disappointed. Um, in verse 32, uh, the cry for mercy is sent ahead of them. A, uh, Hadad's uh, reps come, they put nooses around their necks, and they come with sackcloth, which is an international sign of mourning, Right, And they come in and they, they bring a message in front of the king of Syria to the king of Israel. And they say, hey, the king's got a question. Is it, what do you think about letting him live? And then they get a favorable response, you know? So what does uh, our king Ahab say? He's alive? Well, you remember the song, uh, he ain't heavy, he's my brother, right? <laughs> Well, he starts singing it. <laughs> he starts singing, he ain't my enemy, he's my brother, right? So uh, leave it to an unbeliever to be lenient when God's asking for justice and when God wants mercy to be unyielding. He just can't get it right. 
So because he doesn't walk with God, so he's not enlightened. So the violins start playing in the background. The two enemies of God uh, have a love fest now. So Hadad invites up into, uh, is invited up into Ahab's chariot for a heart to heart. And they get choked up and a little sappy. And the Syrian goes first. He says, you know what? I'm going to return all the cities that my father took from your father. And then the Jewish king wipes back a tear. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to let you guys sell fruits and veggies just like my dad did in Damascus. That's what he's saying. We'll buy your fruits and veggies. Just like the old days. So these two guys who are both lost, uh, now making friends. And there's a big... Uh, man hug, apparently, here in the chariot. I love you, man. Okay, so nice, <laughs> nice to show mercy when God wills it, but that's not what God wanted from Ahab. Let's finish up and we'll be done. Verse 35 to the end. By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets said to his companion, another prophet, another man of God, who should know, strike me with your weapon. A minor injury. But the man refused. So the prophet said, because you've not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. Wow. Verse 37. The prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. So that man struck him and wounded him. <laughs> yeah, right away. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> he saw the lion over there. He's like, okay, where would you like it? Uh, uh, then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. As the king, Ahab, passes by, the prophet calls out to him, your servant went into the thick of battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, guard this man. If he's missing, it'll be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized them as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his, your people for his. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. All right, so we have Ahab gets fed up. The king gets a heads up. Uh, the Syria gives up, and now Ahab's told, Time's up, all right? Let's finish up. So Ahab, uh, his misguided leniency to uh, Israel's enemy, uh, evil Hadad, and his self-trust, really, instead of trusting the Lord, is not gonna go without a rebuke now. And so from the prophet, the school of prophets, up comes this anonymous man of God, uh, who's going to do the job. So verses 35 through 36, a very strange scene indeed. 
a head scratcher, one of those Old Testament things you just read and go, what was that about? All right, so here's a divine command comes to one of the prophets who God wants him to engage King Ahab so that God could pronounce judgment. And apparently God knows that King Ahab's not gonna stop unless there's a little bit of blood. And so the divine command comes to the prophet uh, who needs a minor injury to snag Ahab into place where God can pronounce the judgment. Uh, He commands the fellow prophet who should know if it's a word of the Lord to provide a minor injury who refuses to his own loss. Now, you might be saying, that makes zero sense to me. I could bring a lot of stories and narratives from the Bible before you that are like this, that are a little unsettling. I would ask you, does Jesus on the cross make sense to you? I mean, if we want to stop and say, hey, uh, I don't get this, you know, and if you want to get stumbled about something, I suggest you go to God pouring himself into a human body and laying down on a piece of wood that he created and letting his creation crucify him on a cross. I mean, there are a lot of things that just Ananias and Sapphira, two Christians who really made a big mistake and suffered a great loss in the New Testament under the covenant of grace. I mean, there are a lot of passages that you read and you're just like, wow, I really don't understand that. Well, one writer said this, never let a difficult text cast aspersions on the God who does all things well. Amen? Another writer, when Bible texts leave you somewhat dismayed because of their abrupt accounts of something strange and unsettling to your ears, know this, there's always more to the story. And with that missing information would come greater understanding and with greater understanding, your mind less troubled. Uh, I'm of the opinion that when we get to heaven, we're gonna get all of this and we're not gonna be stumbled. We're going to understand it. So, and another thing. You know what? About this guy saying, strike me. God told me to tell you to strike me. Well, God asks from us more than he did the prophet. Your hand, your foot, your eye that causes you to sin. Gouge it out. Deny self. Pick up cross and die. I mean, he, you know, we're talking about one guy just saying, give me a, a, a strike here. That doesn't make sense. Does it make sense that Jesus says, pick up your cross and die to find life? You have to die. Well, that goes against our, our natural inclinations as well, right? So that's just something to think about. The prophet gets his bloody shoulder or his arm or whatever, puts a bandage on it. So he's got a little blood or a gash or something. I don't know. King Ahab passes by, just so happens, and the sight of the injured soldier gives him some pause, and he uh, opens the door to a conversation. So once, once the prophet has his attention, the king's, he has a prophet's parable for him. This is very Old Testament. Tell the story, and you're supposed to find yourself in it. But he doesn't, right? He says, hey, listen, king, I had the responsibility to guard a prisoner at the cost of my own life. But you know how things go? You know, I got busy here and there, and oops, he got away. Now I got to pay with my life. And he says, yep, 
You said it. You just said it. Now you've got to pay with your life. You, from your own lips, you're judged. Too bad. Oh, of all the times, have mercy. If you would have had mercy on him, the story all would have been changed. If you would have said, you know what? He did mention a talent of silver or gold in there you could give. So why don't we go with the pay, make a payment. Let's be merciful to you because God just did this amazing thing for a wicked man like me. And you know what? I need his mercy. We need his mercy. I've led Israel to sin. I'm repenting. I've seen the mighty hand of God wipe out 300,000 soldiers with our little two little flocks of goats. Oh, mercy to you, sir. Mercy to you because I need mercy. You would have read something totally different. But the guy just doesn't get it. And so from his own mouth, he says, well, you said it. You're dead. And then the prophet says, oh, no, king. Actually, from your mouth, your words just said it. And now God is going to take your words. But if he would have said, I'm going to show you mercy, the prophet would have said, from your mouth, your own words, mercy to you, sir, back to you. Oh, he just missed it, just missed it, just like a lot of people, just right there. It's right there. What does Romans chapter 10 talk about salvation? It's so close to you. uh, Paul says by the Holy Spirit, don't think about salvation as like you got to climb up into heaven and drag God down to do something, or, or you have to go into hell and raise Jesus up from Hades. But what does the word say? It says the word of life and salvation is near to you. It's on your lips. That if anybody's just confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus is alive, you will be saved. I'm making it so hard. It's so easy. And it would have been so easy for this king just to have pronounced mercy in the light of what God just did for you. Just be merciful. But he couldn't do it. So the king of Israel goes home, sullen and displeased. He's angry. He still has time to repent, you know, but he does it. He goes home to celebrate victory. He's going home, and this is another thing. He goes home as victorious outwardly, but inwardly he's just been really sort of condemned, right? And that's the way a lot of people are in this world. Outwardly, they're so victorious. They're successful financially uh, with relationships, with jobs and houses and cars and, and connections and pleasures and traveling and all of this stuff. And, and, and outwardly, victorious. But inwardly, like King Ahab, not doing well with the Lord and therefore really kind of doomed so God has worked patiently and mercifully and lovingly with Ahab uh, but this guy just won't repent and believe and how easily these sad chapters could be changed to happy endings and so I'm wondering you know it's kind of a big crowd tonight I'm wondering if somebody's here tonight you, you, you know you're apart from God you're not reconciled with him. I mean, we all sense uh, that sinful nature in all of us. But you know if you've accepted Christ or not. Uh, I'm talking to you tonight 
you've got the head knowledge. You're agreeing with a lot of stuff. You're like Ahab in the sense of that, wow, you really hear the word of the Lord and you cooperate a little bit, but you've never really come to know the Lord in a saving way, that God by his spirit comes in and there's, there's something you know is different. You sense that God has saved you and put you right. Tonight, I just want to offer that to you as we close. And I know Nick's going to come up and the worship team's going to come up and, and play. We're going to worship. But uh, I didn't want to leave chapter 20 without, we, without what we call an altar call. A lot of people just assume if you're here on a Wednesday night, you must know the Lord and you must already be saved. But, you know, that's not always the case. And so uh, here comes the altar call. The altar call says this. If you want to get right with God, God says, let's do this. He's made peace with you. And Christians right now aren't checking out and saying, well, this part doesn't uh, concern me, so I'm just going to mentally check out right now. Actually, what they're doing is praying for you. That once and for all, on this night, you could write it down in, in a Bible somewhere, I became a Christian. I became right with God. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes. So tonight's your night. You want to get right with God. You want to accept the peace that he's made with you by confessing your sins and receiving him as Lord. So if that's you tonight, we don't call you out. We just ask you to slip your hand up nice and high so we can pray for you. Okay, one a couple of hands right away and anybody else like to say a third hand very nice four and five hands and yet another hand all right so here here's uh here's what we're going to do just repeat this prayer he said it's that easy believe it in your heart all right let's pray this prayer after me dear heavenly father I accept Jesus as my savior tonight. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he's alive and that he is Lord. I ask you to forgive me, to change me, to fill me with your Holy Spirit that I become your child. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow. God bless you. There it I had two different times today when the Lord made it very obvious to me. When, when do I take altar calls? I give altar calls on Wednesday nights. It's more of a Sunday thing, you know? But twice today, the Lord just let me know you need to give an altar call and the hands popping up all over the place. Wow, that is so awesome. Listen, you who responded to the Lord, we have Bibles for you. We have a little, some information. Now what? And we've got people who want to pray with you over at the cross. If you want to hang out a little bit, we'll get you started. We'll get you a Bible. We'll walk with you. You can't do it alone. That's why we're here for you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. <laughs>